0: Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa.
1: That's me, hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short
0: films. This is an eight-part series about American movie ratings. Part one focuses on Prano Bailey Bond's 2021 slasher movie Censor as an introduction to censorship generally. And what is Censor all about?
1: A A British film censor named Enid Baines works for the British government, basically previewing films and deciding what needs to be cut out of them, what needs to be censored from them to make them permissible, as well as assigning them ratings. Along the way, uh, we find out she has a, uh, a a sister that's missing, and she has uh, some emotional baggage uh, relating to that, and the two things kind of end up going downhill in a big way. We're
0: in 1985, and we're in Thatcherite, England, in which there is a lot of argument about social mores gone amok. What we have seen in this country is the emergence of an organized revolutionary minority
1: who prepared to exploit industrial disputes,
0: but whose real aim is the breakdown of law and order and the destruction of democratic parliamentary government. The exemplary texts that we are watching Enid review are exploitative, violent, sexually provocative, very graphic movies that are meant for a low kind of an audience. And one of the strains of consideration that runs through the movie is that if these movies are shown to or consumed by impressionable youth or unsophisticated people, it might cause a mirroring where those impressionable unsophisticated people will act out these horrendous crimes watched in this movie. We know that Enid doesn't really buy this, but she takes to the letter of what's being assigned her that she will ensure every movie that goes through her desk will be appropriately rated for the appropriate audience to avoid exactly that problem.
1: No one's going to pick this up and think it's a documentary. It's so fake. To
0: you, it might be sausages for intestines, but what if it gets into the hands of children? Exactly. Kids could be rewinding and watching those scenes over and over again. Which is exactly what new government guidelines are pointing at. Video
1: technology is More changing guidelines. the rules. guidelines.
0: Great. Not as if we haven't got enough on our hands. How can we do our job properly if we're constantly bogged down by government bureaucracy? It's the nation's sanity they're worried about. Why don't they stop slashing social services? Okay, I get it. But I'm afraid we're not here to debate the government. Can we get back on track? One period detail I thought was fantastic is everybody in this thing, except for Enid, smokes cigarettes constantly. Yeah. I have a dim memory of the middle 80s here in the United States, and I can recall my folks took me to go see Time Bandits. We're in the lobby, you know, to make you go buy popcorn or what have you, and there were video games. So I was trying to get quarters out of the old man. I'm Um, running back and forth. You know, I'm probably good old days, seven or eight years old. And my mom kept, like, grabbing me and and pushing me aside from the crowd. I didn't know what the problem was. And she told me once we finally sat down, you kept running by a man with an open cigarette ash right at your eye level. Oh, jeez. And he wasn't paying attention, and neither were you. And she was frightened that, you know, this this homely kid was going to get one in the eye and do permanent damage. Use your eye for an ashtray. This is a long side to say. Yeah. One of the details they get right in Censor is uh, the fashion, what they're wearing, the hairstyles, Mm. some of the physical props, typewriters. Phone answering machines, the very old-style videotape recorders we watched. Yeah, the
1: big bulky VCRs. With these gigantic remote yeah. controls.
0: And then move back frame by frame, physically spinning yeah. a dial. And the but giant
1: uh, boxes for the, uh, for the cassette.
0: Enid at, I'd say, approximately age nine. She's the older of two sisters. Mm-hmm. And her seven-year-old younger sister, Nina disappeared one strange day in the woods in 1965. And we're given to believe that Enid has always lived with this trauma, but it's blocked from her memory. She really does not know what happened to Nina, but no body was ever recovered.
1: And it's sort of implied that the parents have actually some lay some residual blame on her for it. That's kind of hinted at.
0: Like, you're the elder and you should have looked after her, and you weren't able to give us any clues. And we had this scene when we meet the parents.
1: Your dad and I have been thinking about this for a long time. It hasn't been an easy decision. In it, I know it's difficult, but we need to find a way to let go. Let go? Try to find some sort of peace. Dad and I aren't going to be around forever, and I don't want to grow old wishing for a happy ending that we all know might never come.
0: So are you deciding that she's dead? That sits in the background of Enid, who is clearly a goofed-up person, although when we meet her, she's not. Some of
1: those scenes were so excessive. Just focus on getting it right. Don't really think about anything else.
0: Once Enid begins to lose her grip a little bit, she starts to become fixated on some of the older titles in the archive for which she works as a censor, and comes to believe that a notable exploitation filmmaker may have been involved in kidnapping her sister, possibly murdering her sister, and has built a career on these sort of exactly like life crimes. There's a funny little gesture that the lead actress, and this this uh, is an Irish actress named Neam Alger, I think is her name. She has this tick, and it's one we all know now from modern office work, where we're always stooped over computers. Periodically in the course of her labors, she erects her body, yeah. squares her shoulders, and kind of pops her collarbone, yeah. and, and just shifts her head a little bit. And
1: she like touches her shoulders. Right, kind of reminded me of that Mary Catherine Gallagher. Yeah, character it is a little bright where she you know puts her hands in her armpit. Sometimes when I get nervous, I stick my fingers
0: under my arms and I smell like that. And as we watch the character do that at work, it makes sense. Because she's stooped over her desk making careful notes about these movies that she chooses to censor as a profession. But later in the movie, we also watch her do this as she recovers and deals with revelations, she thinks. Odd flashbacks that may or may not be true. Or they could just be images from many of the terrible movies that she's watched. And so we see the actress perform this step of self-awareness. Which is probably a therapeutic trick. I can imagine that a psychotherapist would say, listen, when you're feeling anxious, do this thing with your body to change your mental state." Yeah, it's
1: like counting to ten or like one of those stress balls or something. Something, right.
0: We watch her having created this system for herself, knowing as well that she was not provided professional assistance given how her parents proceed and deal with her. And there are also the typical traits that we see in a horror movie, canted angles. Mm. There are some really soft lighting techniques, which are redolent of certain 70s movies. We see a lot of that in Kubrick's movies, going down tunnels or into dark hallways. A lot of smoke as people are smoking, but also there's a haze to the way the images work. Red is a big colorful sort of thing. And we have a big widescreen image of the present story of Enid, is in contrast to the very academy ratio squarish image of many of the horror movies that she watches and when her external reality as Enid collapses with her internalized weird psychosexual break having to do with that childhood trauma, the image becomes square again because she gets lost in this frames within frames which is an interesting gesture the movie makes it's a knowing movie about how movies look. Well yeah,
1: everything you would have seen on home video at the time would have been in that aspect ratio because it we had to fit a TV, right? Exactly, a square box. You know, there was no widescreen. There was no sixteen by nine.
0: Right, people weren't going to go for that. You know, they right. things clipped inside of, that standard square. How we
1: wound up cursed with pan and scan, yeah, and yeah, things.
0: and and letterbox, which yeah. for some reason ignorant people don't enjoy. So, <laughs> <laughs> the the point that becomes kind of interesting about this movie is roughly a third of the way through. A movie that Enid had at one time rated does, in fact, become the inspiration text for a killer who murders his family. This becomes a, a cause of stress for her because journalists, honest reporters, investigate what's mm-hmm. happened and they go right to her because she's the person who signed off. This movie does meditate on a legitimate problem, and that is how we regulate public expression when we know that public expression does influence people.
1: But yeah, right. do we need
0: to get ahead of that? And actually restrict what's there.
1: You know, one of the things that I find interesting about this subject, and sort of one of the things that this movie sort of highlights, is the sort of media-driven hypocrisy by the public at large. On one hand, you have this guy eat his girlfriend's face, and the public is outraged. And they're like, oh, it's because of this movie. Mm -hmm. So they come after Enid for signing off on it you are simultaneously willing to absolve the murderer of personal responsibility by suggesting that, had they not watched this film, they wouldn't have done it. But you're not willing to absolve the censor of personal responsibility by saying, but you've signed off on this, you made this guy commit the murder,
0: and as what? I recall it, she even made corrections and forced it to be less severe and gnarly. Than it was to conform with the established standards that she is enforcing. Right. She, in other words, she professionalized it and did her job. Right. Well, so so, so where, where where does where does personal responsibility lie for people?
1: Right. Why are you willing to cut the killer a pass and go after the the girl that censored the damn thing? Yeah. And and that to me is very believable. Um, I, I see it today with, you know, a, a lot of the stuff with, you know, people wanting to control, you know, discourse in, in the public sphere.
0: The library shelves and bookshelves uh, in school. Right. And, like. and
1: and the uh, the notion is like, oh, well, you know, we have to protect people because they might, you know, we might indoctrinate them or yeah. they might go out and do this themselves, like as if they're not in control of their own, you know, their, their own faculties. And, I you know, it's it, it sort of it's sort of ridiculous it to me it
0: infantilizes
1: everybody it's always rubbed
0: me the wrong way completely but... like 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 it's up to it's up to me
1: to decide what i'm going to do i'm the one that decided to commit whatever action i committed based on what i'd heard even if i did hear something hateful or 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 violent or see something violent or whatever that sort of started the gears turning in my mind. Ultimately, the responsibility still lies with me because I'm the one that did
0: it. One feature of this movie that is uh, it demonstrates a real intelligence, I think, behind the writer-director, and this is a, a person new to my experience, Prano Bailey Bond, a woman filmmaker, and that was one reason that drew me to the title and suggests that we watch this together. She's also the named co-writer. So the interesting feature is that Enid, in fact, does act out the horror movie that she sees. Right. She has seen so many dozens, if not hundreds, perhaps even thousands in the course of her professional career as a censor. She has a difficulty managing what is true to life, what is true to memory, and where she fits into all of the above until finally her fantasies, her nightmares, her memories, her reality, and her profession collapse. And in the conclusion of the movie, she becomes an actress in this exploitation movie maker's set... But she believes she's freeing her actual sister, who's in fact an actress and not her sister at all. right. She concludes the piece by murdering a <laughs> co-star whopping oh, yeah. the head off of the director
1: you did this, this is all your fault.
0: And dragging this poor red-headed woman to her parents' house, not understanding what a nightmare she's created. And we get glimpses of that with these funny little editing cues that help us understand that Enid is at bliss. I right. finally found my baby sister. Right. But we understand you've gone no, you, completely mad off
1: the deep end. You
0: could kind of read it both
1: ways. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it, you could you see it as like sort of a, a parable about how you know censorship is bad. But at the same time, if you were the kind of person that believed in censorship, you could absolutely read this as C. She watched, because she had to see all the stuff. She,
0: she couldn't possibly be more sophisticated. She is literally right. The, right. the conscience of the nation. Right,
1: right. And she's been pushed over the edge right. by this disgusting, salacious material. <laughs> uh, and this, this film is absolutely a, 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 a peon to the benefits of censorship.
0: Absolutely right. And it also involves some of the many traits that we're now very used to with slasher and horror-oriented movies. Phallic knives, phallic trophies... Phallus, phallus, phallus. It's a big penis parade. Penetration. Totally. Axes that lop off heads, the body being opened up to see the monstrosity within, blood and guts every which way. And the other signature issue that this movie centers on, and we've seen this elsewhere, Last House on the Left is one that comes to my mind. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Many of the monstrous things happen in forests. Forests at night forests and misty conditions. Yeah. and when we think about what the forest means, it's nature. Nature typically is a feminine space. It's typically gendered that way. That's where the bloodshed happened, i.e., it's menses. Yeah. It's a place of woman's life. The forest I've also heard referred to as a, a pubic region of, <laughs> of having to do with with different kinds of procreative iconography. Sure, sure. And that's where all well, of yeah, this all the kind of pagan stuff. Yeah, like it's yeah. all in
1: the. I actually I've even heard the term forest exploitation
0: <laughs> to refer to that's because
1: good. we had, particularly in the 70s and 80s, yeah, you know, we had uh, so many horror films. ...take place out in the woods.
0: Yeah, well, I Spit on Your Grave is this. Yeah. In Friday the 13th movies. I don't think that Censor the Movie arrives at a very satisfying, meat and potatoes conclusion that fills my plate. Right. I think partly it's easily 10 or 15 minutes too long. It doesn't have enough material to sustain its length. And it almost gets by on that by having a centrally compelling performer. That is Miss Elgar. She's really very good. Mm and we get the gag that her emotional and mental and psychological life is collapsing around her relationship with movies. That's been done before. It's interesting to see how this works out And the set of intertexts that showed up in my brain as I was watching this. There was Blair Witch Project. I saw little glimpses of Irreversible. deliberately raw techniques show up there's out of focus material there's overexposed material all of that's done on purpose so I get this is smart but sometimes just speed the thing along
1: the film's conclusion is not quite as strong as sort of the issues that are presented but it does it can start a number of valuable conversations And and I think for you know a sort of a low budget or lower budget horror film many of them don't give you things to think about
0: There's the scoundrel sort of movie producer character who shows up partway through and is very excessively flirtatious. We know to flag that guy as a 'er ne'er-do-well. And when eventually he meets his demise by falling down on one of his movie awards that stabs him through the mouth. (coughs) Then the camera moves down his body and we see that he's wet himself. It's giallo-like. And I'm not disturbed by thinking it's very real. You need it to be a spectacle, so you gotta you gotta make it heightened. <laughs> and there's there are a couple of moments like that in the near conclusion of the movie when she has misread the film set she's on and believes that she's actually saving this sister who's not her sister. But that's what she thinks. Yeah. And she grabs an axe and for some reason there's an actual axe not a prop tool on set and begins hacking a guy apart. Blood is splattered all over her. And it's kind of a terrific image because yeah. there's red all through her hair and across her body and and in some odd ways, it makes her look uh, like a voluptuary. She's yeah. so much more beautiful <laughs> when she's yeah just when she let the Go. Stuff. Yeah,
1: totally. Oh, and then I liked that. Uh, it was a nice touch too. How his head crashes through the television.
0: And they released this thing during the middle of COVID, in a season of other horror movies, and across the list of things I know were in theaters at the same time that this one made its very small debut, were the Saw sequel Spiral. A Quiet Place Part 2. And The Forever Purge. And in the Anishamalan movie, Old. Uh. Now, all of these movies have something to recommend them. Most of them are franchise pieces that are tied in with a whole bunch of other material that's already been in popular culture for years. Whereas this little movie that could, called Censor, sticks out from all of that and is trying to poke a hole into a heritage of horror movies. And I think that that deserves a place at the table. I would take this over those others most any day of the week simply because it's trying for more.
1: I I don't feel I need to have seen Spiral to believe that this is a more ambitious and successful film than the, what is it, like the seventh Saw film? Right.
0: There's a nice little note in the middle of Censor, and it's when Enid goes to the home of this scoundrel producer, she's trying to run down this weird filmmaker who she believes may be involved in her sister's disappearance and possibly death, but can't actually find him. But she can't just do a You Find It on her app right, and yeah. find out where the guy is. She yeah, has to go through she this can't really... Just Google him. So in the midst of trying to run him down, she goes to the producer, who she feels will know where he lives, or at least where he works, while there he feels that she is offering herself to him for a sexual assignation. Of course. She is not. (laughs) She walks into his living room and says, This room seems familiar.
1: Must be a sign. It's a rape scene from Extreme Coder.
0: Someone's got a keen eye. And what's so great about that line, to me, is it signifies the way that a low-budget filmmaker, and this includes you, Ed, (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll use found locations, found materials, your buddies. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. To, to
0: be the stuff in your movies because yeah. you can't pay a person thousand dollars a day and right. fly
1: them in from New York. This sort of actually kind of calls back to the forest conversation we were having too, because in addition to all of those sort of subtextual, subtextually significant things about the forest being, you know, a pubic region and all that, <laughs> it's also like we can shoot there without a permit. That's right. You know, because like if we, somebody <laughs> has to come <laughs> run you out, that's fine.
0: You'll drive a mile down to the other part of the forest. And that forest and looks, looks going.
1: exactly the same, yeah. and you can write. You don't have to because finding. Locations and paying for locations for, you know, aspiring uh, young or new filmmakers it can be an absolute nightmare. Like there's a restaurant here in town, for example, where uh, students will often shoot restaurant scenes because this restaurant, they do it enough times that they have like a, a standard rate that they'll charge <laughs> yeah. you. And they have like a back area to their dining room where they'll close it off and they'll let you shoot there problem is the restaurant is open 24 hours and they have music so consequently you can pay to shoot there but then like these one students in particular that shot uh, their film at this restaurant uh, when i was in film school they had to adr the whole thing because none of the audio was usable because of the the ambient noise the music and, and and the and the crowd and they weren't very good at adr
0: <laughs> what so a hot mess. The, right, yeah. right, and, and,
1: and that's not to say that the script was very good to begin with, I and mean, this was a student film. But where else were they going to get a restaurant? Right,
0: and and that does bring light to certain of the choices that this movie makes. It's a small cast. Most of the scenes are two and three actors at once. Some some scenes are entirely carried on the shoulders of the, the lead actress. Mm. We're shooting at night. Right. you're not going to be as observed, won't be as many people around to have to do crowd control. Personal spaces that you possess, like your own bedroom, mm-hmm. your family's house, grandma's cool guest cottage if she'll let you come out on some weekend when she's not home and you can shoot there. That's the way this movie yeah. feels.
1: It's easier to control the light at night. You don't yeah. worry about clouds or, you know, the getting late in the day. <laughs> and <laughs> because, day's dark.
0: And with darkness in this movie, at least, starts to overlap with and signify the madness of our lead character. It's a perfectly sensible choice. Mm. And, of course, the filmmakers that she's trying to find and run down are doing an active shoot in the woods at night for all the reasons you've just explained. And that's the final sequence of the movie. (laughs) We're thinking about censorship, generally, for an arc of several different screenings and several different conversation pieces so among the reasons to select this movie, A, I read about it at peak COVID times when I was a shut-in, worried about what was happening in the wider world and whether my industry was going to collapse around me. And I read about this obscure British movie that debuted at Sundance and thought, that sounds rad. Yeah. So that was a reason to show this and share it with you. And I know that we have a similar sensitivity and tolerance for things <laughs> which are, are not necessarily backed by MGM money yeah. or 20th Century Fox. And I know that we both share... A convincing commitment to things that are attempting purposefully to exploit the envelope of what is permissible Mm -hmm. on a screen. So, censorship. That becomes then the umbrella that we're exploring here. And this movie, Censor, kicks that off because we have a rather thoughtful and ambivalent portrait of whether censorship is valuable in as much as it does protect the vulnerable, or that it is a bad thing, because even people who are so-called invulnerable can fall prey to their own disordered thinking.
1: We have Enid, who's deciding what we, the public, all get to see or don't get to see, what's right for all of us, but then she's a lunatic.
0: To my experience, the earliest known movie that we have in history is a thing called Round Hay Garden Scene. This was shot in Leeds, England in 1888, predating many of the archival materials that we are generally educated in at yeah. schools through the present. This has only been recently uncovered, and I point this out because it, it only is a few seconds long. It features four people walking across a garden, and as I recall, they walk across the garden backwards, so it's visually strange. But in the cast of people, and they're just playing themselves, they're not wearing masks or trying to do Shakespeare and recite lines. They're just people dressed, walking in a garden, but it includes a mix of male and female bodies. There are places on this earth right now that object to seeing female bodies in public art. I'm not talking nude female bodies. I'm right. talking you can see a face. Right. You can see bared hands. And in this movie from 1888, our earliest movie, at least to my current understanding of movies, there are women on screen. But we flash forward a little bit to 1896, which is a well-known case study in a movie called The Kiss. This comes out of Edison's Combine, the Black Maria Studio in New Jersey, and it features two performers reenacting a scene from a stage production they were then part of, where a man kisses a woman repeatedly in the course of seven or eight seconds. And this did get people up in arms. Look at this pornographic imagery. Look at these people who aren't married, who are performers, kissing each other. Movies then, as now, often present heightened moments of human experience that we pay a lot of attention to. To watch The Kiss, back in 1896, was probably dependent on a device that you would stoop over and place your eyes onto a binoculars-like screen to look at a film strip.
1: Yeah, like at the Penny Arcade at Disneyland.
0: Or else, a few years later, it might be projected on a screen in front of you where these big, slurping, kissing faces would be three or four times normal height. Pure spectacle. Right. And therein becomes a big money problem for what movies are all about and why we should censor them. The spectacular nature of audiovisual entertainment, which was shepherded into modern society through the movies, means that the human body and what it's capable of doing as behavior is something we need to pay attention to because some of it is objectionable to some of us. And it continues to be a problem with how we reconcile ratings since 1968 with the Motion Picture Association of America, now called the Motion Picture Association, the MPAA, now the MVA. MPA. MPAA, yeah, I've noticed that. By the way, all ratings in America are not legally binding in any way. You could send a three-year-old up to go buy tickets to an NC-17, and the theater owner is not obligated to not sell the ticket. Right. But there is a moral lesson to this. What we're really trying to do is help adults figure out what's appropriate for their dependent children or their dependent elders who can't make some of these sophisticated choices for themselves. And more to the point, help a person feel satisfied the entertainment they're going to sit for will actually entertain them. The movie companies of today have accepted the MPA's rule to define certain standard formats for stories, for graphics, for sound effects, and the like, that will invite young audiences, slightly older audiences, finally to adult audiences, segmenting the population, and in so doing, get the government off their back. The instant that goes wrong, the threat of federal imposition, or statutory imposition, or in the case of history, Religious traditions being enforced upon people Mm -hmm. becomes a real problem that folks grapple with. (laughs) This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin Kirai and Ed Rosa. Boop boobity doo!